Well, uh, good morning, everyone. I want to uh, welcome you here to Jericho Ridge Community Church and invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take a seat. We'll continue with our teaching time together this morning. Uh, I want to especially thank our hospitality team for doing such an amazing job hosting us for brunch this morning. It was a great time. Really good food. It is not often that I have cake for breakfast, but I am willing to make exceptions. And any time, probably, not just Easter. Uh, well, we will continue with our teaching time this morning and in our series. And I want to ask you a question as we jump in. And that is, have you ever tried to tell your kids or somebody that you just met or a friend something from your past, something from your growing up years, and they refuse to believe you? So this winter, I was chatting uh, with our son, Jared, and I, he was telling me how he just thought we got so much snow in Langley this winter. So I, of course, told him, you know, uh, this is true, but not true. In other parts of the country, they get way more snow than here. And when I was growing up, and you know, as soon as a parent starts with that line, when I was growing up, that you're going to get a little mini lecture as a kid, right? So I started to tell him about how much snow there was in northeastern BC when I was growing up. And I, would, I told him, we could get four to six feet of snow in a given winter. And I even showed him a picture because I thought, well, I should at least demonstrate that this is possible in some way. And without even skipping a beat, he says to me, yeah, nice work with Photoshop there, Dad, adding in all that snow. <laughs> I said, Jared, come on, like, we got that much snow growing up. How, you think I would doctor this photo to show you about how much snow we got up? And he says to me, yeah, nowhere on the planet gets that much snow, Dad. Like, yes, because you, in your 10 years of life, have traveled everywhere there is to travel on the planet where there's snow and can state that with accuracy. So I was kind of stuck. I thought, well, I've given him my, my personal experience. I've shown him proof that there can be that much snow. Like I started pulling up charts, meteorological records, and like still I was getting nowhere with this kid. I thought, well, what am I to do now? What do you do when somebody just doesn't believe you about something? I mean, he remained a skeptic, even after all of that proof that I gave to him. Well, another conversation that I had uh, with my daughter had a different ending and was helpfully wrapped up this past summer when we were in London. Because my daughter had been asking me how people in the olden days wrote stuff down. So I, I wasn't sure whether she was asking about when I went to school, or, but it turns out she was, answer, she was asking about ancient Egypt because they were studying this in, in her classroom. So she said, well, how did they write stuff down? Like, how do we know what happened back then? And I explained to her that since approximately 4,000 years BC, that uh, they had been collecting reeds in wet marshy areas, and we'd been using plants and pressing them and drying them and putting them together so that we could create papyrus and scrolls, and that this was paper-thin-like. And uh, then, you know, I thought I'd done a good job of explaining it, and she said to me, yeah, right, you can't make paper out of plants. <sighs> No, yes, yes, you can, and we still do to this day. Um, so we were in the British Museum, and we're pushing through all of the crowds, seeing the Sphinx and the mummies and all of the other interesting stuff. And then this display uh, case catches her eyes, and she walks over to it, and she stands there, and she looks at it for a minute, and then she looks at me, 
She looks back at the display case and she says, all right, I believe you. They did write stuff down in the olden days. <laughs> and here was this uh, calendar fragment from ancient Egypt around 1250 BC. And she had to see it in order to believe it. She had to actually lay eyes on it and then she kind of thought, okay, that doesn't look like English. That might be some kind of ancient script. All right, I believe you now. But it took her to actually uh, eyewitness the thing in order to actually believe that this was, in fact, an ancient calendar fragment from ancient Egypt. And the reason I tell you these stories is to bring up an interesting question for us to wrestle with this Easter Sunday morning. And the question is simply this. How do you go about figuring out that stuff that happened in the past is really true. How would you know? What proof would you need in order to be convinced of something in history? Something that, that actually happened? Well, this past month at Jericho Ridge, we've been exploring a group of questions under the series heading, Why God? And this morning, we're going to ask, why should I believe that something that happened such a long time ago, like the resurrection, how could I trust a story that over 2,000 years ago, a person was killed on a Roman cross, buried, and reportedly came back to life again three days later? And even if it is true, why in the world does it matter? Well, Christians claim throughout history that Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave as the central tenet of the faith. Paul, in one of the most prominent leaders in the early Christian movement, says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is completely useless. So if you want to call yourself a Christian, that means that you are committing yourself intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, logically, to believe in this notion of a bodily resurrection from the dead. Because Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, if it didn't happen to Jesus, then it's not going to happen to anybody else. The whole thing is a hoax, an elaborate ruse. So the question then is, how would you actually demonstrate that the resurrection happened? If establishing the resurrection is so pivotal to Christian faith, so go back to our earlier stories for a minute. How did I go about establishing with my kids the validity of events that happened in the past? Where would you go for evidence to validate or to disprove an event like the resurrection, a historical event or person? Well, I'm going to suggest to you something today, and it might be, you might give me a little bit of pushback on it, and that's fine. We can talk about that after. But I'm going to suggest to you today that history is the same whether you do a quote-unquote secular example or religious example. doesn't matter if it's Jesus or Pharaoh or winter snowfall averages in northeastern BC. When looking into past events, you need the same things, the same kind of litmus tests. And the first litmus test that any historian worth their salt will tell you is that you need early data. The earlier data you can get on something, the better. And the closer you can get to the source, the better. This is a critique that sometimes gets leveled against the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Some skeptics say, well, they just contain a narrative that was made up years in later to try and validate this story 
of Jesus' resurrection. And so we'll deal with that in uh, objection in a few minutes. But you need early data. The earlier the data you can get, the better. Secondly, if you're looking into past events, you need eyewitness data. You need people who actually saw the event themselves, or they were present at the event, and they recorded it in some significant way that actually has some merit to it. And you need these eyewitnesses to be reliable in some way, that you can trust what it is that they say. Now, of course, this too gets harder and harder the further and further you go back in history. So you have to kind of establish some kind of method that you're going to use to demonstrate uh, reliability. And a few months ago, Pastor Keith and I attended uh, a lunch seminar with a gentleman called Dr. Gary Habermas. And he's a prolific author. He's written a number of books, uh, and including one where he talks with uh, perhaps one of the more famous uh, atheists today, uh, Dr. Anthony Flew. And it's a very respectful dialogue. It's an excellent, excellent uh, resource. And Habermas is, uh, his area of specialty in his studies is doubt. He has his PhD in doubt. What is doubt? How does it work? Uh, where would it be plausible to have doubts? Where would you not want to have doubts about particular things? And so he's written extensively about all kinds of situ uh, situations that might have doubt about them. And he's come over the course of uh, his scholarly career to be noted by both atheists and Christians as an expert on the resurrection and on the literature around the, as the resurrection of Jesus. And the historical methodology that he shared uh, at that lunch, I found very helpful. So I'm going to share it with you uh, because I think it'll help not only those of you who have questions about the resurrection, but also uh, those who struggle with talking about and sharing a faith that's rooted in the news of the resurrection with others around you. So here's a challenge, uh, at least as Haberas laid it out uh, over that lunchtime together. So there's a usual method that people of faith go to in order to establish the validity of the resurrection, like a reliability of the resurrection. And so the image that uh, he used for it was one of an umbrella. So he says, if, if you've got, looking at history, and you've got an umbrella, something that's like a really big topic that you want to go after, if you establish that your top premise is true, then everything else underneath that premise will also hold true. So, for a lot of Christians, the argument for the resurrection goes something like this. Well, the New Testament says that it's true, therefore, since the New Testament is true, the resurrection must be true. Everything else underneath it, if I'm going to argue for the New Testament's validity, everything in the New Testament then underneath it has got to be true. So you see this, how this is a top-down kind of approach. If the Bible is true, that's where they start, then everything underneath it is uh, true. And so if you're careful, the, and if people share your premises, the argument works. But people have to agree with you on a whole bunch of other premises in order for this to come together well for you. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is writing... And he's addressing people of faith, and he's asking and inviting them to consider that not everyone shares the same perspectives that they do 
on the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read starting in verse 18. It'll come up on the screens when we get to verse 20. So the message of the cross, Paul says, is foolish to those that are headed for destruction. To those who are being saved, it's the very power of God. And as the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers and scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world to look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He's used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish, Paul says, to the Jews because they ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected, the Jews are offended. The Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Paul's trying to help the people that he's talking to understand that not everybody shares their perspective. He's describing the objections that these two groups have to this message of the gospel. And I think this actually probably fairly accurately describes objections in our day and time. Paul says some people like the Jews are looking for strictly supernatural realities Don't bother them with facts or history. It just has to be an inspirational meta-narrative that calls the best out of us and transforms our world. And if that's all that the resurrection is, that's fine enough for them. On the other hand, Paul says you have people like Greeks, scholars, philosophers. They're looking for everything to fit into a neat and tidy little Petri dish so that they can analyze the life out of the whole thing. But Paul says, you know what? The life and death and deity and resurrection of Jesus defies both of those kinds of categories. And so when you say, well, the resurrection is true because the Bible says that it's true, neither of those groups actually share your perspective on that. And I would guess that maybe some of your friends here today maybe don't share that perspective because they don't share some of those presuppositional assumptions. It sounds to them like foolish talk. Sounds to them like you're speaking in a foreign language in some way. And this is where it might be helpful to think about talking about the resurrection from a different angle, a different perspective, another lens, as it were, another helpful approach. And a helpful approach that you might want to consider is working within the framework of shared historical wisdom to adequately provide an answer to those that are seeking to determine the validity of the resurrection. And this approach, instead of arguing from the top down, you argue, as it were, from the bottom up. It's called the minimal facts approach. And a minimal facts approach, uh, a good analogy as opposed to an umbrella, is uh, just building a a wall, just one brick at a time. And so the way that you build this wall is you only use a, a piece of evidence to support the resurrection in your favor if it's widely agreed upon from multiple angles. And then you can put it into your argument, into your discussion. But if, you know, say you found some evidence on some 18-year-old's blog, that may not be something that you want to build into the core fact of your argument. What we're talking about here when you're kind of building this is people that study history. 
People that study ancient history in particular, people that study first century history, people that study Jewish history, people that study things like the resurrection and that time period, and what kind of authors would they consider valid? What kind of people would they be going to to look at supporting and evidencing something to be true from that time period in history? And so peer-reviewed scholars who actually study this stuff now, the fun thing that I find about this approach is it doesn't actually matter where the writer stands. The writer can be absolutely and positively antagonistic towards Christianity, but they're a historian and they do good historical work. And so if they agree upon it, then, and it's widely understood to be agreed upon, then you can use that particular brick in your evidence for a case for the resurrection. So the question is, is this an area of study that you ask when you're looking at somebody who's talking about this? Is this an area of, that they've done study on? Have they handled the source material properly? Have they done their homework? So the source material, what does it actually say? Well, from 1975 till today, there's approximately 3,500 scholarly sources that have published on the topic of the resurrection. And it's discussed most prominently in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians. And intriguingly, when you look at the literature that historians write, they actually see 1 Corinthians as a perfectly legitimate source text and material. Many of the essays and dissertations begin their focus here. And critics actually unanimously agree that this book of 1 Corinthians was written by a guy named Paul who knew what he was talking about. It's authentic to the first century, they agree on Paul's historical identity and credentials because those are independently verifiable. And so tucked away in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 6, is a timeline that's actually fairly significant when you're dealing with the resurrection because remember what things we need when we're talking about doing good history. You need it to be early. So look at the text with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 6. Paul says this, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was last seen by James, later by the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me, for I am least of all the apostles. And he goes on from there. Well, you think, well, how in the world does this help us to talk about the resurrection in any way? Like, what bricks would that actually give us to be able to build a case for the resurrection. Well, scholars and historians, whether they agree or disagree with Paul's theology and his thinking here, they agree on the fact that Paul is actually our best source for understanding earliest Christian thinking. And Paul is clear here in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 15 that the gospel includes the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says, I believe this to be true because it was passed on to me. The criticism, again, of the gospel accounts is, well, they were written by uh, eyewitnesses later on that maybe had some time to go back and revise their story a little bit to kind of match with what they wanted to communicate. And so some historians would say, well, they're written too late to be of use 
on the accounts we named before, early date and eyewitness data. But here, Paul says, I received this info about the resurrection and I passed it on to you. So where did he get the info from? And what did he do with it? And who did he pass it on to? What bricks could we build with? Well, historians agree that Paul came to the city of Corinth in 51 AD. And he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians at the very, very latest by 55 AD. And he includes this description in 1 Corinthians 1 and now in chapter 15 about how he received his source material about the resurrection. And so in order to connect some dots, we have to go to another uh, one of Paul's writings, and that is the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. So in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about his own conversion experience. And he says, After I came to be convinced of the truth of the gospel, the deity, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I went to Jerusalem, he says in Galatians 1, and I spent 15 days with Peter and with James. So Peter and James, we don't get any closer to eyewitness source data than that. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, I'm writing history here. He says, I have checked out the nature of these reports firsthand. And then in Galatians 2, he says, 14 year later, years later, after that initial meeting, I went back up to Jerusalem and I met with the apostles again. I met with James. I met with Peter. I met with John. And all of us shared the same perspective. Galatians 2, he says, they added nothing to what I was teaching. They all shared the same eyewitness accounts and experiences. And they began to preach and declare it publicly in the very geographical space where the events occurred. And so if the events were untrue, they should have expected public pushback on the historicity of that. And they get this on the theological side, that's for sure, but not actually on the historical side. Paul says Jesus was seen by over 500 people following his resurrection. And Paul's saying and inviting there, some of them are still alive. Go ahead, ask them. Go ask them what they saw. You don't have to take my word for it. He says, go talk to them. Ask around. You'll find this is not an inspirational tale or a fable. It really happened. So Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, I had a meeting. And at this meeting, I actually got this info from the eyewitnesses and I wrote it down. Check my sources. Paul's a good Pharisee. He grew up in knowing and understanding how to document things clearly, historically. Go ask around, he says. Check it out. You'll find this to be true. So the question is, when did this meeting happen then? Well, from what we know of Paul's story, his own conversion on the road to Damascus, which is recorded in the book of Acts, is about two years after the resurrection. And then he goes away for three years and has to think about it because his life has been pretty radically turned upside down. And then at the end of that time, he comes to Jerusalem. So he's in Jerusalem having this meeting at the very, very, very latest in 35 AD. No less than five years out from the resurrection. Bart Erdman, who's one of the most vocal critics and skeptics of early Christian scholars, agrees and says, we have in this text a New Testament source that goes back to the early 
30s AD. The earliest sources here that Paul is referencing go back to one to two years from the resurrection. It's fascinating to me that as a complete critic, Erdman says, I got to give him that. He recorded it accurately, and he's no less than a few years out from the event itself. They don't dispute the facts. Paul's details on the resurrection come quickly and accurately to him within a few years of the event itself. And so people who are still arguing about how late the Gospels were written are actually missing where current scholarship is at. Current scholarship, critical scholarship, those who don't agree with the the actual theological convictions of Christians are saying, yep, what is written down here is accurate within a few years from eyewitnesses, no less than five years from the resurrection. So let's put this into perspective for a moment and deal with another figure slightly earlier in history, just to sort of test our our, uh, methodology here. Uh, How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? All right. Alexander the Great lived uh, about 300 years earlier than this, Uh, He died in about 330 B.C. So what do you think uh, is pretty well tested? Like you read a history book, right? Alexander the Great will be in there. It'll talk about his conquest of the ancient Near East. What do you think? Just take a guess. There's no wrong answer. Take a guess. What do you think is the earliest recorded piece, uh, a record that we have talking about Alexander the Great's life? How many years out from his death do you think? Just take a guess. Ten years. Ten years higher. 900, okay, lower. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty close. But 350 years after his death is the earliest piece of writing that we have detailing Alexander the Great. The earliest biography of his life. The best two biographies of his life written by Adrian and Plutarch are written 425 years and 450 years after he's dead. And they're considered completely historically within acceptable parameters 450 years after his death. The fact that we have such a succinct record five years out from an event 2,000 years ago in history is amazing and should give us great confidence in the resurrection. But you see, even though historians can agree on some of the bricks that you might build into that. It's actually not the bricks that are really important. It's what you do with the bricks that becomes important. For Christians, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus points to one overriding element, and that is hope. That's what Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrection is important, not just because of its historicity, but actually because of what God was doing in the resurrection and through the resurrection. It's a sign of God's power at work. And over the course of these last couple of months, we've been asking in this series questions of faith, asking why God? Why would things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do things happen and come into our lives that are challenging to us? What kind of world is this that we live in? When bad things happen, we ask God, why is this happening to me? What kind of a world is this that you would allow, God would allow things to happen? 
And the answer for Christians to that question is rooted in the resurrection. It's what makes the resurrection the central tenet of the Christian faith. Because the answer to the question, what kind of a world is this, is answered by the cross and the resurrection. This is the kind of world where God the Father watched his only son die, who knows pain. He knows what it means to suffer. But it is also a world where God raised Jesus from the dead. And a world, a kind of world where if Jesus is raised from the dead, then you and I have the possibility of mourning like those who have hope. We can face trials, not with a sense of glib optimism, but genuine hope because we know that the scriptures say, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how would he not also then, along with him, graciously give us all things? What kind of a world do we live in? We live in a post-resurrection world, a world where hope is a possibility. And you may still have doubts, and that's all right. It's natural, it's normal. We've been talking a lot in this series about questions that we wrestle with and continue to wrestle with. But I encourage you today to reflect and respond and think about the nature of those doubts. What is the true nature of your doubt or of your doubts? For some of you, your objections might actually be factual and you might need to have more conversations and learn more. For some of you, the nature of your doubt might actually be emotional. But we may be unwilling to admit it. For some of you, the nature of your doubt is volitional. You have chosen to doubt despite all of the evidence to the contrary. So what is the nature of your doubt? What is the true nature of your doubt when it comes to the resurrection? Maybe for you, You've not thought a lot about that question before and you thought, I, I just never had really considered what impact the resurrection might have and never thought about it to be true or untrue in any way. But maybe as we've been talking today, you've been sensing something stirring in your heart. Maybe today is your, friend, your day, friend, to actually lay your doubts and your fears aside and say yes to God. And you can do that by praying with and saying yes to God and talking with the person who brought you or one of our team as we'll have them available for you in a few minutes for prayer. We would love to explore that with you and celebrate a new beginning today on this Easter Sunday. You may still be in a place of doubt, but you may say, you know what? I actually know enough about God to trust him in the things that I don't actually know fully. What's the nature of your doubt? You might be in another category here today. You might be a person who says, yeah, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, that's fine. Um, but you may have tried to work at talking with others about the resurrection, and you may have worked at it from an umbrella-type perspective and become frustrated because you didn't understand that people weren't, you weren't speaking the same language. They, you didn't understand that they just weren't sharing your same presuppositional convictions about that. And it may not have been helpful. And so you may need to begin to think and reflect a little bit on how do I talk about or think about the resurrection? Maybe you assume that people will share your premises. And if they don't say to you, if you say to them, well, the resurrection is true because the Bible says it's true, and they say, well, I don't believe the Bible, you think, I don't really know where to go from there. All right, I'll have to finish this conversation. 
Maybe you just need to do a little bit more thinking, a little bit more reading. Uh, one of the things I love about Habermas's site is most of his books are free. You just download them. They're excellent reads. I'd highly recommend them to you. So why not do that today, this afternoon? Start into that. Maybe pass them along to a friend. Maybe think about the way in which you talk with people about the resurrection. Is it like an umbrella or is it like building a wall one brick at a time? For me, one of the things that as we come into Easter always strikes me personally is how we can come up against the most amazing life-transforming events and go, "Mm, well, that was interesting, and then walk away. And I find that to be true for myself for Easter. I don't know if you find that to be true. But here we come against the very central linchpin of if you're a person of faith, what you believe to be true. And you think, I don't know, I guess, I guess it's some impact on my life today. And I don't know about you, friend, but I want today to be gripped again by the power of the resurrection, the power of the gospel that Paul talks about. I want it to grip my heart this morning because there's areas of my heart and my life that need resurrection hope. What areas of your heart, what areas of your life need resurrection hope? hope this morning because Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 57 I thank God for the resurrection because it's because of that that he gives us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ maybe you've come here today and you're discouraged there's something going on in your life and maybe nobody else knows about it and you just think to yourself I've given up in this area I don't think God could do anything in this area. I mean, I've tried, I've tried praying about it, thinking about it. Maybe today is the day that's going to mark a new beginning for you. Maybe today is the day when you're going to pray and ask God to stir up faith in your heart in an area that needs resurrection hope again. Our prayer teams would love to pray for and with you and stand with you in that. It doesn't have to be anything big, complicated. It can be something that you just I'm really just, we're just wrestling with this in our life right now. We would love to stand with you and pray with you. The team is going to come and they're going to lead us in worship and song. And our practice here at Jericho Ridge is to create a space after we've heard from God's word and teaching to act on what God is saying to us in this place. And so we just create an environment where the team will lead us in song. You don't have to sing along if you don't want. You can just remain seated in reflection and in prayer. You can move to the sides and the team would be happy to pray with you and uh, converse with you about anything. Maybe you want to go to someone else and give them a word of encouragement that you want to pray for them. Maybe today you just need to spend time reflecting and asking God to change your heart in a given area. Maybe you're facing significant challenges here today and you want someone to pray with you this morning. So I'd encourage you to take some time today to receive resurrection hope and build your life on something solid and substantial. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gift of hope that you have given to us in your son, Jesus. Not just that he lived an exemplary life, not just that he died a substitutionary death on the cross and carried my sin and the sin of every person who has ever lived to the cross. Not just that he was buried, but that he was raised to life on the third day. 
by the power of God at work as a vindication of all of those things to be true. And so, Father, we stand at this place today and we acknowledge and confess some of our doubts and questions to you. Ask that you would move into those places, Holy Spirit, and speak to us. Bring a transformation in hearts and in lives as we submit and open our hearts to you and the possibility that this may just be true, maybe for the first time. And God, we pray for those of us who have grown maybe over-accustomed to the resurrection. We pray that you would stir up fresh resurrection hope in our hearts and in our lives this morning because of what you have done in history and you will continue to do in our history and in our day and in our time. And so we say thank you and we respond in worship because of the hope that the resurrection gives us. In the name of your wonderful son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. The team will lead us and we invite you to come for prayer.